Hi, I'm Kara O'Cleef. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So we're kicking off this fall season with historical fiction. And today we're talking to Vanessa Riley, whose book Queen of Exiles is set in the early 1800s, the Regency period, first in Haiti after the revolution and then Europe. You know, this is this is a period you sort of skate over, I think, in, in high school history. And so it was really exciting for me to learn about all these different details. So um, it made me sort of think about pockets of history that I've discovered sort of throughout my life. And Kara, have there been any moments like that where you've sort of found these these moments? Yes. And, you know, like like, like you said, that, that, that was one of the things that I think was so interesting about reading Vanessa Riley's book is that it's a period that, you know, in, in U.S. history classes, at least you don't learn a whole lot about. When I was, was sort of thinking about what other things in history that I've missed and that I've and, and that I've come across later. Um, the thing I've I, I've thought about a, a lot lately is I've been trying to research a woman named Maud Wagner, who was is known in in the U.S. as the first female tattoo artist in the oh, U.S. Cool. She um, she became a, ta- a tattoo artist after meeting um, her husband, who was like considered the most tattooed man in America, and and learning to to tattoo from him. Uh, but she she became a tattoo artist at like the 1904 World's Fair. And um, and and for, for most of her life, she and her husband were traditional tattoo artists. They um, they 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 did tattooing through um, what was called hand poking, I think. And uh, it, it's been really interesting, kind of trying to dive into learning a little bit more about this person who I, I find really fascinating. But there's so little published about her. So when I'm kind of like thinking about finding out more, I'm like diving into weird history about like this 1904 World's Fair, where she first learned how to become um, a, a tattoo artist and and all of these different things that that, that kind of, you know, do, do get glossed over a little bit. I think there's so much. I have a feeling that's something that we'll be talking about is what gets glossed over in history, what's really highlighted. I stumbled on my little pocket when I was doing my my thesis research at, at George Mason, and, and that was sort of the Russian version of Bloody Sunday, not the U2 uh, song version of Bloody Sunday. There was a Bloody Sunday in Russia in 1905. This was, you know, 10 years before the Bolshevik Revolution, but a lot of really interesting ha- things happened. Marches and violence and, you know, an attempted uprising against the czars. So, you know, like, I just think it's so interesting. Of course, you can't know everything about history, but there's a real joy in finding moments that are so compelling and so fascinating that are not particularly popular knowledge. I'm so stoked to like find out more about this woman you're talking about. <laughs> but that that was one of the things that drew me to Vanessa's book is just reading more about this fascinating and powerful woman in, you know, Haitian history. Yeah. We're going to have to talk more about this because we're both we're both like looking at very different parts of like the 19 like the 19 aughts and just about the same time yeah just one one year apart yeah (laughs) well first we're gonna jump about another hundred years back into the past and um and 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 talk with Vanessa Riley about um about her book so we're really excited to to chat with her today 
Vanessa Riley is the author of several historical novels, including her latest, Queen of Exiles. In addition to being a novelist, she holds degrees in mechanical engineering, industrial engineering, and engineering management. Vanessa lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, I'm excited to be here. So to start off with, I wonder if you could just sort of set the stage for us in the novel we're in 1811 in Haiti, as well as 1820s in in Europe. And what do you think uh, listeners should know about this period? I think they should go in with everything that you think you believe about the Haitian Revolution, about uh, Haiti in general during this time frame, is probably wrong. Um, and you're going to be taken to an, a, a progressive court you're going to see, you know, everybody loves Bridgerton and, uh, you know, the, the the premise. This was somewhat Bridgerton in reality, um, an all black court with power and money and opulence. And then you juxtapose that to 1820s where it's all gone. You have a queen in exile with her daughters escaping with her jewels and that's how they're going to pay for their way. That's how they're going to make it sell these jewels. This is going to, because everything is gone. And all of a sudden those jewels become missing. So you've, you're, you're going to be taken on, on two journeys. I mean, literally the building of a kingdom and what that means, as well as what does exile mean when you've been a queen in a country that the world somewhat did not want to exist. Yeah, I found that so fascinating. And I found just the way you paint this era so fascinating. This is the reason I love historical fiction is that you get to learn so much about different countries or communities or different histories that you didn't know much about. And you write a lot in the Regency era. You've got the Lady Lady Worthing mysteries. You've got the Rogues and Remarkable Women series. What draws you to this era? Um, I, it's something in me, um, you know, I, I was a kid, I was like, oh my goodness, we've got to read another book of the 16th century, yada, 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 or 18th century, 19th century. And then I stumble upon Jane Austen and then the world literally opens up and I'm like, what is this? I love this. Um, it, to me, it's just, it's, it's such a unique time frame where the whole world is seeking freedom and they don't understand what it means for themselves truly, or what it means for someone else. So you're, you've just had the American Revolution, you've had the French Revolution, you've had the Haitian Revolution, you have all this dynacism within the Catholicism, which is the master religion of the world, and where you could still be Catholic, but a Jesuit or a Capuchin or Franciscan and be angry, angry enough to kill for. It's to me, it's completely crazy. And then you have this this world of opulence that you that we peeked behind and you see the how the aristocracy lives versus how the common man lives and the 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 the, the way the what their lives interchange to me it's 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 a great landscape for so many different stories and then when you add color when you add that that third rail of what people don't talk about that existed if you had sugar or coffee or indigo it involved color, people of color manufacturing it, making it. Unfortunately, the enslavement that ran the world, that powered the engines of the world, it's there. But oftentimes those stories are ignored or they, people go on what I call a pain porn hunt where they just find the most horrible stories 
and they wait for someone to save these poor desolate people and they ignore the stories where these poor desolate people came to their own and won and led and did great and unimaginable things yeah that's that's one of the things Susie and I were talking about when we were talking about your book is just like all of these stories that 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 don't get told that get lost to history and one of the things we were really curious about was when you first learned the story of Queen Marie Louise and and if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the experience of of, of learning about her for the first time um I've actually been writing the a prior book uh called System of the Warrior I'd been translating a lot of French uh, because unfortunately, um, many of the documents are written in French. Uh, French was the master language of the time for when um, any kind of legal contracts, it's a very dominant language. Latin was the where histories were written, but legal contracts, that's your French. Um, and I'm starting to read uh, because you have to put the stories back together. Um, no one has gone and really done a lot People have done bits of the work. Um, so I found Thomas Matteo, who literally interviewed, he, he wrote a book about the history of Haiti uh, 10 to 15 years after the revolution. He literally interviews Mary Claire Bonaire, uh, the former emperor, uh, empress uh, of Haiti. Um, so he knows these people and he's talking with them. So it's like the freshest version. And there's a, there's a section in there where he's talking about the generals and the general's wives. And I see this woman, Louise Christophe, Mary Louise Christophe. Um, and she's very unassuming. Everything I read about her in this, this, this narrative is very unassuming. Uh, and then later on, I find out that she was the first queen. I was like, how does this unassuming woman, the, the, the second in commands, the wife of the second in command under Jean-Jacques Dessalines, how does she go from that to queen? And then you start peeling the onion and you, you, you find out that she is the first, in my opinion, the first media stock royal. Literally, at, when she's in Europe, everywhere she goes, the newspapers are following. They're saying, how many servants is she taking with them? Uh, where they're staying? Literally, she's staying at the Osborne Hotel. She's staying at XYZ Hotel. If she's waiting on any kind of diplomatic papers, they're announcing this. Uh, if there's men involved, there are people, it's crazy. Once again, how do you go from this regal queen of a country to now being stalked in Europe? So it's like I had to put all the pieces together because it did not make any sense to me. Her story is incredible. And, you know, it's just she comes from such unassuming sort of like background and then to just rise and rise and then, you know, have her major setbacks. And then as you're saying, rise and, and rise again, it just this seemed so much to be a story about a woman finding her voice in life because even you know when when she was queen even trying to find her voice with her husband you know all of these different things um can can you talk a little bit you've already started to to do this to talk about why you think this journey and this this journey for her to find her voice was so important to tell yeah this as you as you said you have a woman of humble means or her father owns a hotel, which you know puts her definitely in the middle class, as as we think about it from from a modern perspective. Um, and she's seeing these elegant women come in from Europe, and they're dressed in their jewelries, and how they want their linens done in their rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So she's getting a a, a background of training to put to make this next level that she goes to very successful. She brings elegance and style. 
she had to have got it from these different trans uh, transitions or, or transactions with these people that she's interfacing with. But she is, you know, the you always hear this thing, the woman behind the man, right? Mm -hmm. She literally is the woman behind the man. Um, they're, they have an intense love uh, and she's trying to guide him, but he's this strapping, you know, war hero and he, he's very masculine and, you know, he has an image of a woman, this is your role, but his needs, his mental needs, he needs her to translate. He needs her voice. It, it's, it's almost this dichotomy of, he almost wants the portrait of her to show the kingdom, this is the queen and this is how she would look. But he really does need the voice that he's trying to silence on one hand, to talk to him, to tell him that he's okay, to tell him that what they're doing is still right, that she still believes in him. And then when you get on the world stage, she is still finding this voice. How do I represent the past, the, 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 the things that my husband was trying to do? And yet knowing this country, you know, turned against him, turned against my family, the pains of the losses that this country has done, but yet I am still Haitian. I still want the best. So she's still finding this voice amongst all the circumstances. So she, she's an interesting study to me. You know, and I felt like a big part of that was there's, she has to do so much border crossing um, in the novel. You know, we're, there's, there's the literal borders, borders of um, traveling through Europe, le leaving Haiti. Um, but there's also the borders of social class and race and, you know, the histories of, you know, formerly enslaved people building up li very different lives in Haiti. What, what are some of the, the most important examples of, of that? And, and why do you think this idea of border crossing um, still resonates so much today? I actually love that concept um, because it's as a woman trying to find her place and she's in exile, she's constantly crossing borders. She's constantly moving. Um, you know, she has a daughter and she she's, wants to make sure this daughter has as much health and life as possible. So they go to the spa cities in Europe, um, you know, searching for cures. Um, and also searching for peace because they're still being hounded by reporters or even people formerly associated with the kingdom looking for the money. So border crossings to me, you know, you sometimes, I, you know, I watched, maybe I watched too many movies as a child. And maybe you, you see these dramatic, uh, you know, World War II border crossings where, you know, the Gestapo is coming and you're about to get, but literally that could happen. Um, they, you know, particularly when she's crossing into France, France is no friend of the Haitian court. Um, this could happen. She could be sacrificed. She knows what happened to um, Toussaint Latour's wife, uh, Latour's wife. She was tortured by the French because they kept trying to make her say that he'd committed all these acts of treason and she never would. Um, so you get this, this thing about crossing borders, physically crossing borders. But then you look at the social classes. Um, there's a scene in the book, it's one of my favorite scenes. And it was one of those, oh my God, why hasn't somebody else pointed this out? Uh, where <laughs> she is invited to the opera. It's in Florence. It's one of the grand openings. All the aristocracy, all the ex-royals, all the diplomats have been invited. And she and her daughters are invited. 
And David, I, uh, I think one of the travel books had just had just offhanded mentioned who was there. And he listed the people, how they were seated on the front row. Uh, it was like the king of uh, Westphalia, the former king of maybe Sweden, um, a couple other people, Madame Christoph and her daughters, then a prince. And I realized they proceeded in order of precedence. So she, even though her kingdom is gone, like many of the kings that were there that night, their kings were their kingdoms were also gone, but they still gave her the acclaim. They seated her in precedence of order and they gave her that honor. She was accepted amongst these people. And to me, that's an, a beautiful statement about how the things we think we know, we don't. We assume that she's going to be ostracized. I even, I'd read so many um, uh, modern historians. That was their take. Sorrowful queens, ostracized because she's black. She had to be poor. She's not sitting on that front row if she doesn't have money. And she's definitely not sitting on that front row if they don't recognize her as a queen. So it blows it blows everything away. And and these are the kinds of stories that aren't told that need to be told because I think it readjusts our lenses when we see some people got it. Some people figure things out no matter how difficult the circumstances. We can do this too. That's one of the reasons I loved all of the newspaper clippings that the real newspaper clippings that you included because it's just it's like really gratifying to see the proof. This is true. This I'm I'm telling you a true story. This is really what happened. Exactly challenging you know, maybe people have no clue who she is or you you only have what these historians are saying which is just not a very accurate portrayal. So I really, really love the inclusion of those articles. That must have been fun to put those together. It it was fun, but as I'm doing the research, I'm being blown every time I, I, you, I put in my favorites because they blew my mind <laughs> just reading them. Um, and I think it, you know, when you read historical fiction, you're in your head, you're like, okay, what's true? What's fiction? Where is the author inserting her point of view? Uh, when is he doing, you have a lot of questions as a reader. And I didn't want that to take you because there's so many things that one would think is fantastical. Um, and I wanted you to see it so that you knew you, you're, you're not wasting your time. Uh, you are investing in, in, a, in a somewhat true story. The author is just bringing it to you, adding the emotions to make you keep turning the pages, which I hope you keep turning the pages. But this is all the, 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 the scope of her journey that I am incorporating is true. I got it from the research and I'm giving it to you. Yeah. And you, know, you mentioned the idea of her being sort of like the first media royal who, who, who is getting followed and, and, and getting reported on in, in this kind of way. So I feel like the newspaper clippings added so much to, to that idea as well. I, I imagine with all of this research and, and everything you, you found, there were maybe some anecdotes or facts about her that you discovered that you weren't actually able to include in the novel. Did you have any kind of like favorite bits of information that, that you weren't able to put into the book? Um, some of her reflections, um, with her sisters, uh, is particularly her older sister. Her older sister is a hero, um, one of the war heroes. She's one of the ones, uh, Cecile Fatim, who literally helped start the revolutions. Um, it would have been nice to be able to include more time with her. Um, I, I found their relationship was one of respect 
Um, but yet still, you know, big sister, middle sister, kind of, you know, the rivalries going on. There's something when you, you have an older sister where you want approval. You want approval for what you're doing. Um, and Cecile uh, is somewhat holding the line of the people in the sand. This is why we we went through all of this. This is why we turned to revolution. And you cannot get lost to the gold and the silver and the coins and the gowns and all the things that royalty brings. You have to be true to the people. But yet you're still having that moment with, with Henri where you, you he's struggling and he's got this vision and you believe in that vision. And so there are moments that I would love to have included more with the sister, uh, but I got to keep you the novels long enough. I got to keep you moving and pushing and, and getting through. That was such a dynamic relationship, even just to see sort of in the pieces that we get it. I, I want to go back a little bit to something that you were talking about earlier when you were talking about translating from the French and French being the language of of contracts. It's a very, you know, obviously there's a lot of like political dynamics. I thought it was so interesting, sort of this balance or tension between the the Creole and the French and, you know, especially moments um, when Marie-Louise is telling Suleiman to only use French in front of the king and, you know, those types of things and Creole being the language of freedom in Haiti. What was, what did you sort of discover about that and, and how did you integrate that into the, into the book? Haitian Creole is, it's, it's the language that the enslaved was using. They, you know, it's, 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 it's a mixture. It's not pure French. It's got some Spanish because of the the trade of the of uh, uh, between the colonies, um, and then depending upon who colonized the various colonies, they've got certain different. And so when the slaves are transported or sold between colonies, you get this mixing. So it's a, it's a very dynamic language. It's a beautiful language. It's phonetic. It's much more phonetic. So it sounds like you hear it and you you hear the the bits of, of French and Spanish. Um, and it had to be included, but I don't actually speak Haitian Creole. <laughs> so I had to get, you know, various friends and, and, um, and, uh, people to help with that. And I'm, I'm like, thank you so much. Uh, because you want to do honor. I never want to do harm. I want to do honor, but the balance of the reading, I, it's an, it's an English audience. It's people primarily speaking English, but this book would do very well if it were translated in various languages, because I've, I've had oftentimes when I go and speak, I, I have people from, from the Caribbean that want it in Spanish, that want it in, in Creole too. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it would be great to see the book translated so that they could take a bigger part of it and, and, and see the, the, I think the justice and the beauty of the story that was done. I loved how the the language was just integrated. It didn't feel separate. It was just, it just flowed in the conversation. And so it felt really natural, even if you did not fully understand what it was saying, or you only, depending on what language you studied in high school, you know, or you speak naturally, you get bits and bobs, but it just, it felt really just laced into the whole story, which added a lot. And thank you. Because that, that's, that's the goal, because I don't want you to be lifted out of the story. I want you to feel the story. It needs to feel organic. Um, I want you to keep turning pages. And if you are too heavy in dialect, that that's a way that can 
put too much distance. I want you to, to get her story. I want you to know Louise by the time you're done. So I made sure it was, it was a, it's a lot of work. We make sure that it flows and it's necessary um, as we switch to these various languages within the book, because, you know, sometimes you get a little uh, Prussian or <laughs> you get a little German and, and all these different, different things. So uh, very careful on that. But I want to tell the story as holistically as possible. And languages are a part of that. Absolutely. So we want to shift gears just a little bit, sort of as we move near the end of this. We we mentioned in your bio that you hold several advanced degrees in engineering, um, including a doctorate in mechanical engineering, and you originally worked in that field. So what made you want to start writing books full time and how did you decide to make that career switch? Yeah. So um, when I was in high school, um, I wrote a lot. I wrote journals. I won competitions. And but I was also on the math team. So I'm your geek's geek. I'm like like third level, you know, squared geek. Um, I, my mom literally sits me down and she was like, baby, you always need to be able to pay your bills. Women having a career as as writers, you know, it's you know, go back. Well, it's it's this is a new thing um, or it feels like a new thing, uh, particularly for women of color. You get like this pop and then nothing in a pop and nothing um and you know as we see more writers of colors now you know publishing traditionally getting their stories done i i don't want this to be another pop window i, I want it to be this is just how publishing is everybody gets a, an opportunity to tell their story so i was working for i've done projects for general motors uh, nasa some microsystems hp and I loved engineering, but I remember one time I turned in a report on diecast manufacturing and my boss goes, hey, Vanessa, this is just way too interesting. You need to tone it back a little bit, tone it back a little bit. Um, so when you have a gift, it's gonna come out and you want it controlled. And so uh, at a certain point, um, I had, I, I call it the four jobs time frame. I was engineer during the day, I was wife when I came home. I was mom somewhere in between that hump coming home and whatnot. And then when I got all of them to bed from 10 p.m. to 2, I started writing. And so 2 a.m. Yes, yes, yes. Um, writing and working. So it wasn't until the last two years I've been full time. Worked for startups, telecom startups. I've uh, had my own software company. Um, engineering has always been a part and, and now you, you get that brain that wants to figure out everything, wants to understand the textiles and the, and you get that, that, that the zeal of an engineer in the writing. And I think it shows through in some of how weedy I can get without really putting the weeds into the book, so to speak. I always love hearing, um, stories about people who, are have these incredibly busy lives and then find those times to um to 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 commit to you know another passion to commit to the writing and and like you said sometimes that means you're up until two o'clock in the morning or other writers are getting up at five to do it um but i i, I always think that's the, that's that's really valuable to just like hear what goes into getting started you, like that if you really want it you find the time and you teach your body that this is important because, you know, if you can excuse, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this and, and you push it off, you're training your mind to say it's not important. So dedication, dedication, dedication. Lack of sleep, hey. lack of sleep, lack of sleep. <laughs> That's the key. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our last question, um, 
we've been talking about um this this historical fiction novel um you also write historical romance and historical mystery so we wanted to end on the question of love or murder what's your favorite genre to write in Ooh, i i think oh that's that's hard that's like choosing between children (laughs) (laughs) i i love them both and and for different reasons uh you know with Romance, I'm, I'm a romance girl, right? Um, I love that story of two people who, you know, are just meant to be together and they overcome challenges because I think we need that in the world. We need to know that it's possible and that you can find that balance in love. But then I love that sitting on the edge of your seat and, and guessing, it was him. It was him. I know it was him. <laughs> oh, it wasn't him? Was it? Oh, okay. I love that. I love the tension. Um, and and with the Lady Worthen series, I bring you, you know, I, I bring you back to eighteen oh six London, and we get to delve into the politics that's going on at the time because it's crazy, on top of the murder uh, mystery. So it's it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, Vanessa, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.